Let's pray that God would help us to reflect on his word well this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us clear heads and open hearts to receive what it is that you have to communicate to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cheats never prosper. The proverb means that those who gain an unfair advantage by cheating will ultimately face the consequences for their actions. And we can often see that, can't we? In the last month, the three-time Olympic swimming gold medalist Sun Yang, a Chinese national hero, has been suspended from competition for eight years for a drug testing violation, which in effect, I believe, has pretty much ended his career. What about 2012, when seven times Tour de France winner Lance Armstrong from the United States was found guilty of using performance-enhancing drugs over the course of his cycling career by a US anti-doping agency? He was named as the ringleader of the most sophisticated, professionalised and successful doping program that sport has ever seen. And he was stripped of all his achievements from August 1998 onwards. But these are the ones who got caught. We as good as know that many sports people uh, take performance-enhancing drugs and are never caught. And as a consequence, many sports people are prepared to take the risk. An American physician a number of years ago by the name of Bob Goldman surveyed 198 athletes and he asked them the following question. He said... Would you take a performance-enhancing banned drug if you were guaranteed to win and not get caught? Now, how many out of the 198 do you think said they would? 195. Now, it gets more disturbing because he then asked a follow-up question. He asked them if they would take a performance-enhancing substance, if they knew they would not be caught, win every event they entered in the next five years and then died from the side effects. Would they take it? Over half said they would. Do cheats prosper? I guess it's a good question, isn't it? Well, this morning we're continuing our series in the book of uh, Genesis. We're up to chapters 27 and 28. And the title this morning is Jacob, Cheats Never Prosper? Question mark. And it's called that because, as the outline on the screen shows and that the insert you would have received when you came in, if you're using that, indicates that in chapter 27, Jacob gets Isaac's blessing deceptively. And then, in chapter 28, Jacob gets God's blessing undeservedly. So Jacob, who doesn't deserve it, keeps on getting blessed. So do cheats prosper? Well... Let's see as we go through the passage, and as we do so, there are a lot of other good things to reflect on on the way. So let's look at the first point. Jacob gets Isaac's blessing deceptively. This is the focus of chapter 27 and the readings we've just had. Well, in this chapter, the chickens have come home to roost. We saw family favouritism back in Genesis chapter 25 when we read that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And having favourites is never a good family policy, and in this chapter, the favouritism plays itself out. Isaac, who is getting on in years, decides that he wants to bless his son Esau. Now, 
There's nothing particularly wrong about that, except that I believe that normal practice in those days was that you would bless all your sons. And here's Isaac sort of seeming to do it a bit secretively with Esau. Why did you do that? And also, was Isaac aware of a prophecy which was given to his wife Rebecca a number of years earlier, which said that the oldest son, Esau, would serve the younger son, Jacob? We don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But whatever the case was, Isaac seems to sort of, we get the impression that he's doing this a bit secretively. But obviously not secretively enough. Because Rebecca, his wife, seems to overhear and quickly plans an elaborate scheme uh, which will see her favourite, Jacob, get the blessing in place of Isaac's favourite, Esau. Now, there's all sorts of things which are wrong with this, uh, one of which is, doesn't really seem to be a good sign about the marriage between Isaac and Rebekah, does it? I mean, there's just all this deception going on. Uh, when I was preaching on the earlier chapters last week, I noted that Isaac and Rebekah's marriage seemed to have gotten on to, off to a really good start. Back in chapter 24, verse 67, it says, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Wow, so it seems to get off to a good start, but it seems over time cracks have started to appear. Now that's not unusual today either. I looked at an article during the week which was published in the Chicago Tribune newspaper back in 2017 about marriages and it refers to the seven-year itch, the 10-year slump, the 10 to 15-year period when happiness and communication between partners hits rock bottom and then there's a 30-year divorce peak. The article says to say that marriage is hard work is an understatement. It concludes. But apparently if couples can make it through those years, things start to improve by about the 35th anniversary. (laughs) So those of you who have hit 35, good on you. You know, I I guess the point here is that if we are married, uh, marriages take effort, they take work, we need to work on our communication, our decision-making, our problem-solving, our conflict resolution. Uh, We can't rest on our laurels from the past. There are all sorts of forces in our society, perhaps more so than in years gone by, which act against marriage, which is one of the reasons why our church is running the marriage course, which we're currently doing. We did it last year, we're doing it this term. I trust we'll do it probably in term three, just to sort of help those of us who are married, just to, I guess, you know, just think about how we're going, a bit of a service check, that sort of thing. Uh, I recommend that course to you next time we run it, if you're not currently doing it. Well, Rebecca and Jacob could have done with the course, uh, but anyway, Rebecca and, sorry, Isaac could have done with the course, but Rebecca and Jacob's plans start to unfold. It's a horrible case of deception. The situation was, Isaac said to Esau, Esau, look, I'm going to give you my blessing, but can you go out, catch some wild game, make it into a stew or something, bring it back, I'll eat it, then I'll give you the blessing. What happens? Rebecca gets two goats or some goats, repairs some tasty food based on that, and she and Jacob disguise Jacob, so they put Jacob in uh, his brother's clothes, and then because Jacob was an hairy man, um, goat skin on the neck and I think on the hands or arms, so that if Isaac touches him, he'll feel, you know, Esau's hirsute skin. So that's what they do, and uh, the plan unfolds. Now, verse 12 indicates that Jacob is not so much concerned by the deception, he's more concerned with, what if I get caught? That's his concern. And then the plan unfolds, and the lies just 
come one after the other. Verse 18, Jacob goes to his father. Who is it? Isaac asks. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Now there's a straight out lie. But then he brings God in on it as well. Did you notice that in verse 20? Isaac asked his son, how did you find it, the food, so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. He's bringing God in on it. And then finally, verse 24. Are you really my son Esau? He asked. I am, he replied. Now, what are you like at just doing straight out lies? Uh, don't, don't volunteer your answer. Um, I used to find it extremely difficult to lie to my parents. And on one particular occasion when I was 16 and I went to the pub underage and told my parents I'd been somewhere else, I was so guilt-ridden that two days later I had to go and confess it. Uh, but Jacob seems to have had no such qualms. And anyway, the plan seems to work. Jacob gets his father's blessing, something that seems to have been really highly valued in that culture. Now, not surprisingly, this leads to widespread family devastation. Just after Jacob receives the blessing, Esau comes back. He's got his food. He goes in to get the blessing and the whole plan is uncovered, as of course it would. As the deception is discovered, verse 33, we read that Isaac trembled violently. Verse 34, when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry. But it seems that the blessing can't be revoked and reissued. It's too late. And then in verse 41, and not surprisingly, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, himself the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, Rebecca, the mother, learns of this and makes arrangements for Jacob to leave home before that can take place. Jacob will leave, we read in the next chapter, and from what we understand in Genesis, uh, Jacob was away from home for 20 years, and there's no evidence to suggest that um, Rebecca and Jacob ever saw each other again. So, sin or wrongdoing does not just cause problems at the end of our life, when we face our maker, if we're unforgiven, it causes devastation during life as well. Here, every member of Isaac's family suffers. Isaac realises he can't trust his wife. I'm assuming here that he figured out and Esau figured out that Rebecca and Jacob had colluded. Isaac can't trust his wife. He can't trust his youngest son. Rebecca, if she hasn't already, has lost the confidence of her husband, draws the ire of her eldest son Esau and, lost, and loses her favourite son Jacob, it seems probably for the rest of her life. Esau wants to kill his brother, can't have fond thoughts of his mother, and Jacob, his brother wants to kill him, his father can't trust him, and he has to leave his mother, possibly never to see her again. You see, with sin, no one wins. It wrecks families and it wrecks things generally. So I guess a question to, or thing to remind myself and yourself is, please don't think that wrongdoing will ever produce good results. Don't think it will ever, if, you, if you're contemplating doing something, oh, I think it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, don't ever think it's going to produce a good result. You know, deceiving others, abusing others, betraying others, gossiping, violence, grudges, whatever, it never has good results. Now, of course, we often do these things, and as Christians, we can be forgiven, 
but the consequences will still be there, often. Don't ever think it will get a good result. Well, let me get to chapter 28, and here Jacob gets God's blessing now, undeservedly, obviously. Wow. But things don't start out well for Jacob in this chapter. He's fleeing home and he's alone. And now this wasn't read out, but what happens? Jacob is fleeing. He gets, I think, to near the edge of the promised land. And we read in verse 11 of chapter 28, if you've got your devices or if you've got your Bibles open there. When he, Jacob, reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Now, what a miserable picture that paints. You know, Jacob was described earlier in in Genesis as someone who was content to stay at home among the tents. And here he is, away from home, away from the comfort of the family tents, away from his family, sleeping out in the open. And what does he use for a pillow? He uses a rock. Now, you can't have much of a choice if out of all the things available to use as a pillow, you think, hey, I'm going to use that rock to put my head on tonight. I mean, he's clearly, I can assume, outside and he's at rock bottom. Now, many people, when their lives hit rock bottom, will sometimes have their thoughts turn to God. Some of you may know the story of Louis Zamperini, who featured in the book Unbroken and the movie Unbroken from a few years ago. And you may know that during the Second World War, his plane was shot down over the Pacific, and he and one or two others end up spending, I think it's 49 days, on a life raft flowing around in the Pacific Ocean. And apparently on that life raft... Louis Zamperini's thoughts turned, at least while he was on the raft, to God and he prayed to God. Does Jacob's thoughts turn to God here? Does he cry out, oh God of my fathers, please help me, please help me. Does he pray, I'm so sorry for what I've done, have mercy on me, I realise that I've been an idiot. No, he doesn't do any of that. In fact, it's God who takes the initiative in what follows and appears to Jacob unbidden in a dream. Verse 12 of chapter 28. He, Jacob, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. This is the original stairway to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. Now this is a vision in a dream, but it must have been an awe-inspiring one to see this ladder from earth to heaven, the supernatural beings ascending and descending on it, and there is God at the top. Now uh, people in the scriptures who encounter God or God's uh, angels or messengers, unless God's glory and the angels' glory is really heavily concealed, whenever there's an encounter like that, they are always nothing but dumbstruck awe-inspiring, awe-inspired or whatever. Now, I don't know what awe-inspiring things you've witnessed in your life firsthand. I don't know, the opening ceremonies, the Olympic Games here in Sydney in 2000 or the Swiss Alps in all their glory or the northern lights up in the sky. But that would have been nothing, I imagine, compared to the glory which would have been seen in this vision. And verse 17 tells us that, that Jacob was struck by awe. But it's not just what he saw which really struck him, but it's also, we can only assume, what he heard. Because God says some incredible things in the following verses. God starts by reaffirming to Jacob the promises he's previously made to Isaac and Abraham before him. Look at verse 13. The Lord says to him, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. 
Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. There are those three promises again. Land, great nation, blessing to all. Now consider how they would have been heard in Jacob's circumstances at the time. He's had to leave home, he's fleeing from home, he's just been promised the land. He's uh, alone out in the wilderness, well I think it was the wilderness I assume, he's told he's going to be the father of a great nation. And as someone who if he has any self-awareness realises that he's brought grief to his entire family, learns that all peoples will be blessed through um, his offspring. How must that have been received? But there's more because God goes on to make some further uh, promises. In verse 15, God says, I am with you and then I will watch over you wherever you go. Now, away from home, sleeping outside in some level of danger and with an uncertain future, God's promise to be with him and to watch over him must have been a great comfort. Now, can I say the same is true for us if we're God's people today. God is with his people today. God is watching over his people today in the ordinary and the extraordinary circumstances of life. So God is with us in the most mundane things of the everyday. Uh, Saint Teresa of Avila once said that even in the kitchen, the Lord walks among the pots and pans. So when you get home and you're making lunch or washing up, God is with you, watching over you. I've often thought of this when I've gone, you know, on holidays travelling when I was younger. I remember when I uh, landed in London as a 20-year-old by myself, not really knowing anyone in London. Uh, The idea that God was with me, watching over me, was a great comfort. And I have a particular verse which I used to remember when travelling from Psalm 139, which says, If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. God was with me, watching over me, and you and anyone else who was a follower of Jesus. And then God is with us in the far more intense, difficult and serious situations of life as well. Some of you may have heard of a Romanian pastor by the name of Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand was imprisoned in Romania during the communist era because he was a Christian pastor doing the work of a Christian pastor. Uh, He was imprisoned various times uh, and when he got out, uh, he got to the West and started an organisation called Voice of the Martyrs, which uh, many of you would have heard of. But Wormbrand once wrote a book with the following title. The title was With God in Solitary Confinement, which I think the title speaks for itself. Even in solitary confinement, God was with him. So can I just say and remind myself that if you or we, if we are followers of Jesus, God is always with us, watching over us, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Well, at this point you might be thinking, how on earth does Jacob deserve to have these sorts of promises made to him? In fact, you may have been thinking the same thing about Isaac last week and Abraham in earlier weeks as well. And the answer is, they don't. They don't deserve to have these sorts of problem, uh, promises made to him. They're beneficiaries of God's grace. Remember, God's grace is God's undeserved goodness to people. And really, the fact that God shows grace shouldn't really surprise us because God's grace is right throughout the whole scriptures. God specialises in grace. It's one of the things he does. He's into saving the unworthy. 
I mean, consider the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He's persecuting the church. God saves him. More recently in in church history, um, John Newton in the 18th century was a slave trader, that most horrible of trades. God saves him. He becomes an evangelical Anglican pastor and pens the words to amazing grace for him. Now, I'm sure there are a lot more deserving people around than, than Paul and John Newton, but God saved them. Can I say that's just as well, though? Because if we're followers of Jesus, there are probably more deserving people around than us. But God has saved us, hasn't he? Thank goodness for grace. Ephesians 2 says very well that it's by grace we've been saved through faith. Uh, And this is not from yourself, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Jacob gets this through grace, we get what we get through grace. Now, if we look at Jacob and sort of think, how could God choose Jacob? Well, I I do understand that. (laughs) But... We also need to be careful that we're not falling into the trap of self-righteousness because how could God save Jacob? Of course he'd want to save me because I'm a real catch for God, you know, good on me. It's grace. A number of years ago, Philip Yancey, a very well-known writer, wrote a very good book, I think, called What's So Amazing About Grace. Describes how God shows grace. And one of the phrases he uses in that book is the scandal of grace. And what he means by the scandal of grace, I think, is that God can forgive some of the worst people. Apostle Paul is one of the people he cites, I believe. And interestingly, uh, Yancey, I've read, was inspired to write the book by the lack of grace he sometimes observed in the Christian community in the States. Apparently, Yancey once went to the White House to meet President Clinton. And Clinton told him, I think Clinton, who had some sort of Baptist upbringing, said... I've been in politics long enough to expect criticism and hostility, but I was unprepared for the hatred I get from Christians. Why do Christians hate me so much? Now, Yancey says, look, you may or may not agree with um, Clinton's policies at the time, but it's no excuse for Christians to hate. We've got to be people who show grace. Well, grace is shown to Jacob here. And uh, what's Jacob's response to this abundance of grace? Well, it's interesting. It says that he's awestruck, or he says it's awesome. He then puts up a little monument. But then in verse 20, it reads as follows. He says, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I safely return to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. If then. I mean, what on earth is this if-then business? Really, Jacob should be falling over himself saying, oh God, thank you so much. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for doing I don't deserve it. I'm so grateful. I'll do anything you want me to do. But he comes out with this, if you do this, then I'll do that. Interesting. Does he not sound just a little bit ungrateful? But, once again, we need to beware the self-righteousness trap. Could the same thing be said of us? We read in Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do we as followers of Jesus ever try and have this if-then caper on God? God, if you do that, then I'll do that. If you, I don't know, if I marry this person, then I'll go to Bible college. Or if this thing's happened, then I'll go to church on Sunday. You know, if-then, if-then. Do we do deals with God? Now, really... 
we read in the scriptures that God has given himself utterly to us. Uh, The Son of God dying on the cross in our place to offer us forgiveness. God has given himself utterly to us. We should respond by giving ourselves utterly to God. No if-then type stuff. I'm speaking to myself here, as well as everyone else. (laughs) Conclusion. We asked at the start, do cheats prosper? Well, our general observation is life is usually no, things catch up with them in the end and then they definitely will at the day of judgment. But if you're a forgiven cheat, it's a different story, isn't it? You see, forgiven cheats will prosper spiritually. Forgiven cheats, if we're forgiven by Jesus for what we've done, cheating and everything else, we will prosper, not materially necessarily, but spiritually. We'll receive all the spiritual blessings which come the way of Christians. So, If someone was to ask you the question, do cheats prosper? You could answer, well, forgiven cheats will prosper spiritually and then you could explain to them what that actually means and why. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for uh, the book of Genesis and the things we've been learning and reflecting on over recent weeks and will continue to do so. Lord, we thank you that here we see so many things which are just so much to our benefit uh, and we don't deserve it. Thank you that you watch over us Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you show us grace upon grace. Help us with the help of your spirit to respond with gratitude and give ourselves utterly to you. Thank you that cheats or whoever we are can be forgiven and thanks to your mercy we can prosper spiritually in ways that count. We thank you for this reminder and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.